Uh, now I would like to ask Jackie Hansen to the podium. She is Amnesty International staff campaigner for women's rights and equality. Um, she's from the Amnesty Canada International office in Ottawa, and she also used to raise goats. <laughs> It's true. I used to raise goats. I'm now single parenting a six-year-old, which often feels like wrangling goats. So good morning. It is really an honor and a privilege to be here this morning on Treaty 4 territory on the lands of the Cree, Ojibwe, Soto, Dakota, Nakota, Lakota, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. I'd like to thank Lorna for starting off this, starting us off this morning in such a good way. And I'd like to start, thank Vianne for sharing your outrage, because this is, I think, what fuels and drives so much of everything that we're all doing, because we are not there yet. And thank you also to Amnesty Regina for the kind invitation to travel here from Algonquin Territory in Ottawa to share and to learn and take action together today. So I, I often feel like the feminist killjoy <laughs> because there is so much <laughs> that we have to be outraged about. But I wanted to start off this morning talking a bit about hope and about success because we know that we are not there yet in terms of getting anywhere close uh, to gender equality but I wanted to honor and celebrate some of the recent successes, some of the little baby steps that I think are really important building blocks. And so it, sometimes these successes, they can seem very small, and you're going to hear me say a lot of caveats. This is good, but, but there's still steps, and that's really important. So some of these steps for over the last year globally have been in the area of sexual and reproductive rights. So Amnesty International, for a number of years, we had a global campaign called My Body, My Rights. And it was focused on having that discussion globally around bodily autonomy, on talking about how we have a human right to make decisions about our bodies, about our lives, about if, when, how we want to create a family, um, our right to be free from violence, talking about things like early enforced marriage, talking about things like having access to sexuality, information, and services, making the decisions ourselves that work for us in our lives. And that sustained activism, I mean, it was for many years, and it was sometimes felt like we were hitting our heads against a brick wall because we were working on things like overturning a total ban on abortion in El Salvador. Oh. Or doing the same in Ireland, trying to end early enforced marriage in Burkina Faso. And so at times it felt like we were doing all this activism and we had millions of people around the world taking action. And sometimes it felt like we weren't moving so far. Now that campaign, it ended over a year ago. And over the last year, we've really started seeing that long-term campaigning start to pay off. Sometimes little steps forward, but there have been steps forward. So in particular, we've seen some successes around individual cases that have ind impacted individual lives of people who have been criminalized, as well as the lives of their families and communities. So in El Salvador, we saw in February, Teodora was released from prison. Teodora had um, had a miscarriage 
She was under El Salvador's total ban on abortion. She was accused of having an abortion. She was sentenced to over 30 years in prison. And when she was released in February, she had served more than a decade of that sentence. And in that time, her family was from a rural area, and sometimes they could only afford to come to the capital to visit her in prison once per year. So is it a sweet victory that she is now home with her family? Absolutely. But that abortion ban in El Salvador, it's still in place. There was one other woman who was also released last year, but there was also another woman who was sent to prison in El Salvador last summer, also for pregnancy-related complications, meaning someone was, she was accused of having an abortion. So we have not seen legal reform yet, but what we have seen is that we know that when we push the government of El Salvador and when we pick and pick and pick and pick away at a case, every single case of a woman in El Salvador who has been criminalized because of under the total abortion ban, whose case we have worked on in a focused way, has been released from prison. And so we're actually working with partner organizations in El Salvador and the women themselves who are part of this group of women who are often known as Los Diecisiete, who are, because it was originally 17 women, now we know it's more like 30-ish women who are still remain in prison in El Salvador under the total abortion ban. They choose amongst themselves whose case will next be elevated to be the case that will become the face of the campaign, will campaign in a focused way for them to be released. So they're in the process right now of selecting who that next person will be. And then you can expect that you're probably going to see some focused amnesty campaigning, but it's the women themselves that are doing this. But the fact that Teodora is now home with her family, this is not a small thing. Another success was in Argentina. And in Argentina, there was a, a young woman who had been criminalized uh, for um, having a miscarriage, and she had been jailed. And Amnesty and an, a range of other organizations were protesting in the streets. They were advocating for her release. And it took a long time, and it took a lot of focused effort, but she was finally acquitted. So that was a success. Are there further legal reforms? Absolutely. But this gives us something, a success that we can grab onto and we can use to push for further reforms and social change. So I said these successes are modest, but they're, they're still really big. Yet another success last year also came in Latin America, in Chile, which had had one of the most restrictive policies around abortion in the entire world. And what we um, saw last year was legal reform that has now made safe and legal abortion possible, not full choice, but in a certain number of limited circumstances. But even that legal reform, which withstood a constitutional challenge, has made a huge difference. And in Ireland, we've also sit, we're in a place right now where a few years ago it seemed impossible that there would ever be policy reform around abortion rights. And there's now a bill to amend the Constitution to allow safe and legal abortions, and it's passed in both houses of Parliament in the last month. And all constitutional amendments in Ireland have to go to a referendum. And so there is going to be a referendum in May of this year on the 25th. So stay tuned and watch the news around the end of May for that. But this is a huge step 
forward, and this is really the result of Amnesty Ireland, of a number of other organizations working for many, many years, even just to get to this point. So the, the fact that there's going to be a referendum next month is a huge success in and of itself. So this is about incremental change, and this is about things that are baby steps edging us forward, but they are really, really important. Another success over the last year has just really been the fact that witnessing the world is starting to wake up and recognize that Indigenous women are movers and shakers and are on the forefront not only in Canada but around the world and on the forefront of social movements. So here in Canada, we've seen Indigenous women at the grassroots level across the country pushing for change, pushing for a national inquiry, pushing to end violence against Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. And Amnesty, others, we stood in and, you know, alongside them in an ally role for many years, but it was grassroots Indigenous women who have been at the forefront of this work. And now we are starting to see more attention paid. Still a lot more work to do, but more attention paid. We've seen in the last year funders of a dam in Honduras on Lenca territory really rethink whether they wanted to invest in a project that was violating the rights of the Lenca people without their free, prior, and informed consent. And the activists who are at the forefront of that movement in Honduras have largely been indigenous Lenca women and girls. Women like Berta Cáceres, who was murdered in her home two years ago. She was murdered in her home for her activism. Her daughter Bertita is now leading Copin, the organization that they found her, that Berta founded, and she herself has faced death threats. She herself was, and her colleagues were attacked last summer while they were driving along a highway. She escaped the assassination attempt. She's refusing to leave the country. She's refusing to stop the work that she's doing despite the violence that she continues to face because she knows that the struggle is so important and she can't stop doing this work and she won't be silenced. A success is the fact that in a month from now, or actually less than a month, later this month, in Montreal, there's going to be the first conference of, of its kind that I know of, at least, that's going to bring together Indigenous women from countries like the Philippines, from Tanzania, from throughout Latin America, from throughout Canada, I think from the U.S., really from all around the world, to come together to talk about extractive industries and to talk about how extractive industries, the impacts that they're specifically having on indigenous folks, on indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit folks in particular. And these aren't people who are just getting together to say, let's talk about this. These are incredibly powerful leaders of social movements in their own countries. And they're coming together to say, enough of this working in our own countries. We need to be sharing best practices. We need to be working together. We need to be strategizing. Amnesty is really honored to be able to support this conference, and the, one of the coolest things about it is that we're kicked out of the room. Most of this conference is the indigenous activists themselves in a closed-door session, and allies are invited in on the last day to look at how we can be supportive in an ally role, and I could not be happier that this is the format. So I think this is a success. I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am about this. Another success from the last year, and that's in this country, has really been around transgender rights. And so recognizing that trans folk had, at the grassroots level across Canada, had been advocating for well over a decade for appropriate human rights legislation to be passed. 
tough slog. Amnesty got involved near the end when some activists came to us and said, hey, we're burnt, we're done, we're, you know, we need some, some support in an ally role and here's what you can do and we were really happy to do that. The successes that Bill, 16 pa- Bill C-16 passed into law almost a year ago, the challenge is now making sure it's fully implemented, but the fact that it was passed, even when it was government legislation that was actually tabled, was still not a guaranteed thing. It was still not a slam dunk. There was opposition up until the final votes in the Senate committee. It was never, it was all very uncertain. But it was the fact that there were trans folk that were going to offices with senators, sitting down, meeting with people one-on-one, spending sometimes hours with people that actually changed votes and changed minds and made a difference. When the bill actually passed in the House of Commons, Michelle Rempela, a conservative MP who had voted against the legislation and changed her vote, She gave an impassioned speech where she talked about how it was grassroots activists who spent hours with her in her office who showed up after they knew that she voted against the legislation. And they sat with her and they talked with her and they changed her mind. And she very proudly changed her vote, not only did a mea culpa, but really acknowledged their role in actually changing her position on the issue. And I think this, that this was actually the case for a number of members of parliament and a number of senators, and so it really was grassroots activists who helped create this change. So when I, we talk about successes, I kind of have to mention the success of that we do as a country have a prime minister who is a self-proclaimed feminist leading a self-proclaimed feminist government. You can hear the bit of sarcasm. It's a great, but it's a success. We have to, this is a huge success to actually have a self-proclaimed feminist prime minister. Me, as much as anyone else, knows that when we scratch away at that shiny veneer, there's not as much substance under there as we want and we need. But actually having it proclaimed is something that we would not have ever imagined three years ago. And I have seen some changes. I was talking to folks before we started this morning and saying, you know, when I go over to Global Affairs now, they pull me aside in the corridor and say, hey, Jackie, can you tell me what it means to be feminist? And and it's genuine because it's people who are being told to be feminist in what they're doing and it's not being matched with training and they're genuinely not sure what a feminist approach to whatever they're working on looks like. And I'm thrilled when they ask this question. It's like, let's go for coffee. Let's talk this through. But three years ago in Ottawa, those discussions never would have happened. So the fact that they are starting to happen, we know there's a lot more that's needed, but it's an opening. It's a baby step. It's a door that we can walk through. And so while we are not yet there on any of these issues, whether it's on gender-based violence, whether it is on sexual and reproductive rights, whether it's on LGBTI rights, we are not there yet in any of the areas where we're working in terms of gender equality. But we know that there are successes that we can build on. We know that there are best practices. And we need to honor and recognize that none of these successes are accidental. You know, none of these battles that have helped to incrementally move us forward have been won quickly or easily. And we need to acknowledge the feminists on whose shoulders we now stand, who have advocated for years, for decades, for centuries, even just to get us to where we are now, and we need to think about the legacy that we want to leave moving forward. 
And so our challenge to some of our the feminists who've come before us is really to look at how we can match their resolve, how we can match their dedication, their willingness to say, stay the course. Because we have an obligation not only to move forward, but to protect those hard-won successes. Because as we've seen in many cases around the world, we can't just take it for granted that these hard-won successes are we're just going to build on. We have to be always ready that things can backslide, and we just can't let that happen. So we have a long way to go, but there have been some successes. And I wanted to just bottle that energy and excitement and some of the, you know, really focus on some how grassroots activists have helped to create those successes because we have some really serious challenges that are facing us, not only in Canada, but around the world. And I wanted to highlight a couple of those challenges that are ahead of us. So we need to challenge the Canadian government to actually be truly feminist. They're saying they're feminist, but we need to really poke at that and push at that and prod at that. Because saying you're feminist isn't just enough. It's important to articulate how you're being feminist, and not only in what you do, but in how you do it. So we need to work on looking at how we can push government to translate some very nice words into meaningful action that's going to be transformative, that's going to lead to people's rights truly being respected, protected, and fulfilled. So you may have heard in the news Canada has started to say, we have a feminist foreign policy. Hmm, Sounds lovely. Uh, But what is that? It actually has not ever, at least not that we can find, and if you can find it somewhere, point me to it, has not been clearly articulated. So there is a feminist international assistance policy. So here's how Canada's development assistance is going to be pivoted and oriented in a different direction, more towards gender equality. There is a national action plan on women, peace, and security. It's actually Canada's second. We already had an action plan. This is just a, uh, it's actually a much stronger, better one. But these two pieces in and of themselves do not form a comprehensive Canadian foreign policy. So countries like Sweden have a feminist foreign policy, and you can read it in English on their website, and they're really clear and transparent about what that is. So when Minister Freeland says, Canada's feminist foreign policy, we need to say, what is that feminist foreign policy, by the way? So one of our challenges is when you're meeting with members of parliament, when you're meeting with cabinet ministers, when you're meeting with anyone who's involved with the Canadian government, to continue being a broken record, whatever the 21st century version of a broken record is. And and just keep asking, what is this feminist foreign policy? Can you break it down for me? Where can I find this online? And just keep asking and asking and asking and asking. And our hope is that every time we're going to watch us in the media, we're going to start doing it every time Christia Freeland says feminist foreign policy. We're going to get out there and say, can you tell us what that is, Minister Freeland? We, w- we really want to see a feminist foreign policy. We want to see feminist domestic policies. But we need to keep asking the question about what does it look like? What does it mean? Tell us, show us, be transparent. But we also have to hold ourselves as activists to these same rigorous high standards. So we need to look at not only what we're doing in our activism, but we also need to constantly be questioning and changing and evolving how we carry out our activism. We need to be mindful of what voices are privileged and what spaces, whose voices are present, whose aren't, why. 
We need to look at how the ways we're carrying out our activism. Are we actually serving to further oppression or help to end it? So we need to make sure that we're reflecting not only in that on what we're doing, but how we are working in feminist ways, how we're promoting feminist values, how we're being transparent and open and inclusive, and how we're being collaborative and how we're lifting each other up and supporting each other through our work, which are certainly how I see some of the feminist values playing out in our activism. So one of the things we really need to focus on going forward, one of the challenges, is looking at how we can stand in solidarity with and help to lift up some of our fellow human rights defenders, some of our fellow activists around the world, women human rights defenders, LGBTI rights defenders, who in many countries around the world right now, where, globe, where civil society space to advocate is shrinking, it's shrinking even more if you're uh, a women human rights defender or an LGBTI rights defender. And what does that look like? That can mean that you're labeled as a traitor or a terrorist for the work that you do. It can mean that you're criminalized, that you're, you're banned from traveling, that your assets are frozen. It can mean that you're harassed either by state or non-state actors. It can mean that you experience violence. It can mean that you're forcibly disappeared. It can mean that you're marginalized within the social movements that you're part of. It can mean many, many different things. And the reason that women human rights defenders and LGBTI rights defenders are experiencing these rights violations in ways different than other type categories of human rights defenders is because they're experiencing this, this violence, this discrimination, because of what they're advocating for, but also because of who they are, so people are being doubly discriminated against. And so who are these women human rights defenders, these LGBTI rights defenders whose lives are at risk right now? They're women like my friend Ketty. Kevi Niviabandi is now living in Ottawa, and she came to Ottawa from Burundi a couple years ago because she was helping to lead a nonviolent movement of women who were protesting what was happening in Burundi, and they was women peacefully advocating in the streets. And because they were peacefully advocating in the streets, she had to leave with the clothes on her back. She was privileged. She was actually working as the comms person for the U.S. Embassy in Bujumbura, and because of that, she was able to safely get out, and she and her two girls. She showed up in Canada, no job, had to go through a claim, and she was in a shelter, living in a shelter with her girls for over a year while she put things back together. We were lucky to be put in touch with her because she had been in close touch with uh, our amnesty colleagues working in the region, and they said, hey, this incredible women human rights defender has just showed up in Ottawa. She is amazing. You need to meet her. And so we started trying to explore how we could engage and work with, work with Ketty. And she is still, she's now actually working for Nobel Women's Initiative in Ottawa. She's got an apartment for her and her girls. They're settling in. They're rebuilding their lives. But she's still spending a good chunk of her time working on a voluntary basis with other women in Burundi who are in exile now, who are doing voluntary work where they're collecting data on sexual and gender-based violence that they experienced in Burundi before they left or um, right after they left Burundi. This is all volunteer. This is all unsupported. And this is the work that people just continue doing because it has to happen, whether it's funded or not, whether you can be in country or not. This is what you have to do. And Ketty wants nothing more than to be back home, but she knows that because of the stands she took, she probably can't go back, and so she's now focused on rebuilding her life in Canada. 
The people who are having to go in exile because of their work are women like Rayana, who is a woman from Pakistan who spent decades working on women's rights issues. She, she is still not willing to claim refugee status because she really so desperately wants to believe that she can go home. Uh, at some point, that may happen, that may not, and she's actually been working with some other women's rights activists in Canada to form a new organization that is trying to bring together women human rights defenders who are in exile because of the work that they did in their home countries to provide peer support because they recognize that there's a particular context they've all been in that has led them to having to rebuild their lives in some way in Canada, but it means that, it, that peer support is needed and they don't just want to go take a job that's not in their field. They want to look at how they can support their families and also still continue their activism from abroad. And some of these defenders are people like Kasha from Uganda. Kasha is an openly queer woman from Uganda who still lives in Uganda. She's been on Time magazine. She's been like the marshal for a gazillion pride parades around the world. She speaks internationally. She's super amazing, super fearless. And a couple years ago, the Canadian government quietly brought her in for meetings to Ottawa, and we were able to sit down and chat. And that was a time when things were legislatively very hot in Uganda. It was dangerous for her to go back home. And I said, well, so, so why are you going to do this? And she said, look, most of my friends are in exile or have been killed. We can't let them win. I have to go back and do this work. So she went back. She's been doing the work. But last fall, things got a little too much. There wasn't an immediate threat to her personal security at that moment. There have been it many times. But it was that constant barrage of microaggressions, the constant threats, the constant fear that had just become too much. And she was able to get a speaking engagement in Europe, and she used that as an opportunity for a cooling-off period. There were no embassies that were willing to support her leaving the country temporarily for a cooling-off period, but as an activist, that was what she needed to do at that moment for her self-care. So Canada, over a year ago, enacted guidelines on how Canada, the Canadian government, through its foreign policy, is going to support human rights defenders. So I said, hey, Kasia, did you go to the Canadian embassy? And she said, oh, geez, no, I went to a bunch of European ones, and they couldn't help, and I just got frustrated and left. So we're actually in the process of trying to set up a meeting with Global Affairs where she'll video con for the next week or two, where she'll video conference in from Norway, and we really are trying to practically talk to the Canadian government and say, hey, you have this document. It looks very lovely. What does this mean for Kasia? She's going home in a month. She's going back to Uganda, and she's going to be facing the same risks that she faced when she left. What support, because of these guidelines, is the Canadian Embassy going to be able to provide to her? You need to be able to articulate it. She needs to be able to know exactly what she can come to Canada for, and you can't overpromise. So here's someone who is in, ending her cooling off period. She's going back. She knows exactly what threat she's going back to. We're trying to understand how we can be in solidarity with her and support her. And one of those ways is being an interlocutor with the Canadian government to help push them to really articulate what their guidelines mean, how they can support someone like Kasia who's continuing this incredible, incredible work. And when I talk to people like Kasia or Ketty or Rayana or so many of the incredible defenders that we work with around the world, everybody just wants to be home. Everybody wants to be doing their work knowing they're safe and that they can do their work without having to self-censor, without having to worry. They just want to continue peacefully advocating for human rights. 
That's all they want to do. And this, these are the kinds of threats that they're facing. And so one of our next challenges is to stand in solidarity with them. Another challenge is actually something that's coming up that's just emerging on Amnesty's agenda that's here in this very province. And so an upcoming challenge is going to be for us to advocate in solidarity with Indigenous women in this province and likely elsewhere in Canada who have been coercively, coercively or forcibly sterilized, usually through tubal ligation. And so many people may recognize this as, oh, this is a thing of the past. This is something that used to happen. It is not something that used to happen. This is something that is continuing to happen in this province. So you may have heard a couple years ago in the media, a couple women in Saskatoon came forward with their stories of being coercively sterilized. That led to then um, an independent investigation by the Saskatoon Regional Health Authority. The report came out last year. And they apologized, and they did a mea culpa, and they said, yes, this did happen. But they have not done much to then implement the recommendations that came out of their own internal investigation. In the meantime, the the regional health bodies have amalgamated. That's changed things a bit. So what's happened in the wake of that is once a few people came forward, more people have come forward. That independent investigation in Saskatoon spoke to 16 women who said they'd been coercively sterilized. And that's just probably the tip of the iceberg. And in the wake of that, more women keep coming forward, not just from Saskatoon, but throughout Saskatchewan and now from at least three other provinces and territories. And so Maurice Law, a law firm um, that practices here in Saskatchewan, last October they filed a class action lawsuit. As of a couple weeks ago, they had 66 claimants. 66. And they know that if they get the word out more, they're pretty sure those numbers are going to continue to rise. 66. And these are not from 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago. The most recent was in 2014. And most of the cases in that class action suit are from the last 10 to 15 years. So as Amnesty, we're working with partner organizations and we're in the scoping, the research, the, the policy sort of thinking through phase where we're trying to get a sense of people have approached us, Maurice Law, the Native Women's Association of Canada, and said, what can Amnesty do? We're in the process of trying to figure out what that might look like, how we can be a useful and a helpful ally. But we know that certainly that's probably going to call be, it start by calling on Canada to be changed to do a thorough investigation because we know that this isn't just happening in Saskatchewan, it's happening elsewhere. It's probably going to include calling on Canada to change some policies and practices to make sure this never happens again. And it's probably going to include calling for redress for survivors of forcibly forced or coerced sterilizations in this country. So this is more of a stay tuned because this is something happening here. It's happening elsewhere in Canada and it's something that we have worked on in Peru where there was a, a, an organized state sanctioned campaign um, of forced sterilizations of indigenous women in the 90s. So we have this body of work with an amnesty that we can now um, usefully apply here in Canada. So to the courageous women in this province who came forward so bravely with their stories of forced and coerced sterilization, you know, can we promise that the road to justice is going to be easy as this court case, as other stuff goes forward on this issue? No. I mean, the successes I was talking about earlier, they show us that success is possible, but they also show us that it's incremental all too often and it doesn't happen as fast as we need it to happen. 
but can we promise the indigenous women in this province who have been coercively or forcibly sterilized that they're not going to be alone no matter how long it takes? That is something that we can promise. Because as amnesty, as feminist activists, as people who care about women's rights, about LGBTI rights, about gender equality, we're in this for the long haul. We want a more just, we want a more equitable world where everyone can live in safety and freedom and dignity with their rights fully protected, respected, and fulfilled. We want and we need this world now. And it often feels like it takes too much time, and I think we quite understandably are often incredibly impatient. But when we unite, when we advocate together, we can stay the course in the long term. We can be resilient, we can create and sustain hope, we can lift each other up, and we can support each other as we move forward together. And we can and we do create change, you know, one tiny, modest step at a time, but we do. And so together, we've been coming together to say, hey, time's up on the patriarchy. You know, we're showing the world that we've been advocating for a really long time, and we're not going anywhere. And together, we're rethinking, we're reshaping who we are as feminists and how we conduct our advocacy. You know, we're in a moment where we're moving away from saying the future is feminist to saying for the future to be feminist, the world needs to be inclusive of trans, non-binary voices. It needs to be inclusive of black folks, of indigenous folks, that we are constantly needing to reshape and rethink who we are to make sure that we're really living by that principle that none of us is free until all of us are free. So, with that, let's get this conference started today. Let's learn, let's share and let's explore how we can be active with amnesty to create a world where people of every gender identity and expression have the same rights, the same powers, the same privileges, and the same opportunities. Thank you.